Well, this is um, the last time that I'll get to share the disciplines with you. And I want you to know it has just been a joy to be with you this year. I'm so encouraged by you. I know I hear every time I meet with the discussion leaders how encouraged they are, how much they learn from you, and how much I learn from you. So thank you. Um, It's a huge encouragement just to see your faithfulness, to want to grow as a woman after God's own heart to want to grow in your ability to shepherd your heart, to grow in your faithfulness, to meet with God in his word, and to live that out in your home and everywhere God puts you. So thank you for the encouragement that you are to me. Okay. Well, since this is the last time that we're going to cover the disciplines, I want to do it a little bit differently this time. You got a handout today that says, I need you and you need me. And we're going to go through that together. Uh, this is from Jacob Pantla's blog. He reposted it there from another blog back in 2008. And I had printed it out and tucked it in the back of a box and found it this week and thought, oh, that's something I really want to share with all of you. And uh, it's written in the form of a letter. And it says, Dear Sisters in Christ, I need you. I need you to help me. I need you to live your life in such a way that it intends to draw my attention to the glory and greatness of God. Now what discipline is that? Where you're helping me and you're living in such a way that draws my attention to the greatness of God. That's discipline two or three, right? That's that's what those disciplines are after. But look at what that requires. Listen to how the letter continues. I beg you not to sleep in tomorrow morning, but instead to get up and read your Bible. Discover afresh the beauty of God in the sacred text. Remember, this is one believer appealing to another believer. We're saying here, you can't help me put my attention on the greatness of God and the glory of God if you're not beholding the glory of God in his word. And so the appeal continues. Dwell upon his faithfulness to his own promises. Muse upon his glorious gift of grace in the salvation of sinners like you and me. Write the word of God upon your heart so that it produces reverence for God. Isn't that a beautiful way to describe discipline one, what we're after when we're meeting with God in his word? And then it reads, Also I urge you to spend time on your knees in prayer. And even when kneeling is not our physical posture, it must be the posture of our heart. And whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Don't let your mind wander. Don't stop praying until you've started praying. Drive yourself into humble submission before the great and infinite reservoir of grace that you might find help in your neediness. As you leave and go about your day, please preach the glories of the gospel to yourself. And now listen to this explanation of what that means to preach the gospel to yourself. Tell yourself afresh of the glorious gift of grace, the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnation of holiness and love. Hear again the words of John the Baptist, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Watch him obey the law in your place. See his perfection in both speech and in deed. Hear him say afresh, I always do what's pleasing to my Father. That is our Savior. Watch him march resolutely to the cross to purchase our redemption. See him pray for his executioners, 
evangelize his fellow cross-bearers, gasp for breath, commission his disciple, proclaim it is finished, and then give up his life. See him here and marvel. But don't stop here. Run with the disciples to the tomb and stoop with them and see. See the linen cloths by themselves and you too come away marveling at what has happened. Rejoice at the reality of the living Savior who has given his life to vindicate the glory of God and rescue a people for himself. And as you leave, sing the doctrinal praise along with Paul, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in tune with Peter, with joy inexpressible. See, when I hear that, I think, oh, I want to know the gospel more. I want to meditate on it more. Just think about how this kind of thinking, this kind of preaching the gospel to ourselves, would impact our lives and the lives around us. Think about how equipped we would be to battle sin if we were to speak to ourselves this way. And think about the way that Christ would be put on display to others. See what comes next. Now, believer, come and talk to a Christian and tell me something. Tell me something eternal. Give me something for my soul. And these are the same things we can be sharing with unbelievers, right? Tell me what impresses you about Christ. Tell me of the gospel's power. Tell me of Christ's success as our high priest. Tell me of his impending return. Tell me of the divine purpose in trials. Tell me the perseverance of the saints. Tell me of the ultimate success of the church. Tell me God's gracious work in your life. Tell me of the purity and power of the word of God. Tell me how you're praying for me. Please, I need you to do this. My heart needs to hear continually of why Christ is so great. So please, Christian, don't forget to tell me. Be a good friend. And by the grace of God, I will return the favor to you. I hope that that's helpful. I hope it's helpful in understanding Discipline 2 and Discipline 3, and how they give us a way to care for one another with the gospel. And that they absolutely stand on the shoulders of Discipline 1 and the diligent shepherding of our own hearts. And so I plead with you, do this. Shepherd your heart to the word of God, to get the God of the word, and don't ever quit. And live and declare the greatness of our Savior in your home and with your family and to me and at Grace Bible Church and to the ends of the earth. By God's grace, let us give him glory. Let's live for his glory as we never, ever, ever forget the glories of our Savior. So after a year of walking through these disciplines, I'm sorry, you have to give me a minute to get organized here. I'm having trouble figuring out where everything should go. I feel like I'm going to tip over. (laughs) Okay, hopefully not. All right. Um, So we've been looking at these disciplines all year long. And so 
with this being the last time I get to um, teach you, with Scott teaching next week, we're going to go back right to where we started, come full circle. And we're going to look at troubling and comforting truths for my heart. Now, if you get anything out of Wellspring this year, I would hope that you come away being 100% convinced that you need to be very concerned about your heart. Discipline 1 says she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the Word of God, and in particular, the Gospel. And one thing we've emphasized all year long is that we this is not just a reading of God's Word. It's a time, rather, to meet with our Father God. It's a time of beholding our Savior in the pages of Scripture. Scripture says things like fixing our eyes on Jesus, or seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that is what we mean when we say that we want to shepherd our hearts toward God through his word. We are to live our Christian lives with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And that's an objective thing. It's not subjective. It's not a mystical experience. It's not just an impression. But rather we look to the Lord Jesus Christ as he's revealed in the pages of scripture. And finding there the real Christ, we learn to trust him. And obey him. And so this morning, as we come back to Discipline One, that is just what we're going to do today in our time together. We're going to behold our God in the pages of Scripture. In particular, we are going to behold what He has done in salvation from beginning to end, particularly as it relates to our hearts. Now, uh, go ahead and take out your outline. And open up your Bible to Ephesians 4 if you have enough knees to juggle all of that. <laughs> Megan's got a solution. Are you going to be able to see me? As long as I don't hide. Now, why do we start with troubling truths? We've talked about troubling truths in one form of another, one form or another, probably every week that we've been together. So it's a fair question. Why do believers need to remember these troubling truths? Why can't we just jump to the comforting truths? Well, as I pondered that question for myself uh, this week, I came up with an illustration that I hope is helpful, that will help us to think rightly about these truths and help us to frame our thinking about these and to not miss their value. So, true confessions. When I was 16 years old, I totaled the family car. I totaled it. It was my fault. And uh, the accident happened, and I got out of the car. And the first words out of my mouth was, can I still drive it? And uh, the guy said, lady, it's not only it's not drivable, and it's not fixable. Um, my dad, it was a Saturday. My dad was hiking. We lived in Colorado, and he was off in the middle of the Rockies somewhere, and my mom had to ask a neighbor to drive an hour to come pick me up. And sitting in the police station for an hour was a little traumatic. But the hardest thing, harder than sitting in the police station, was waiting for my dad to get home. Because we didn't have cell phones. You know, we couldn't give him a little chance to prepare himself. <laughs> and um, I just had to wait till he walked in the door. And I have a good dad. But I really thought he was going to be upset. I just knew he would be disappointed with me. He had every reason to be really disappointed with me. And I don't remember how we told him, but I just remember that he walked in, he sat on the hearth, or untying his hiking boots, and had me come over and sit with him. 
and he just wanted to know if I was okay. And he didn't ask about the car. In fact, he even said, I don't care about the car. I want to make sure you're okay. He was gentle. He wasn't angry. And my dad's a big guy, you know. I mean, he's been angry with me. (laughs) But he wasn't that day. And that turned out to be a pretty huge event in my life. There were certain lots of lessons for me in that. But looking back, I think one of the biggest was that it was a huge step in my understanding of my dad's character and the character of his love for me. I understood in a whole new way that his love for me was in no way based on my performance. And so I look back at that troubling truth that I was a careless, foolish driver and that I had caused great expense and difficulty to my family and to others. I had a debt I couldn't pay. And I actually cherish that troubling truth. Not because I like what it shows about me, but because what I learned about my dad is priceless. And so that is what we want to do with these troubling truths about our hearts. Let's stand in breathless awe before our God who loves us and transforms ones with hearts such as this. Let it be what drives us to the foot of the cross with hearts overflowing with thankfulness and joy. Okay, so our first troubling truth is that what keeps the sinner from God is hardness of heart. We're going to be in Ephesians 4, and in Ephesians 4, Paul desires to exhort the believers in Ephesus and in the areas around Ephesus. He wants to talk to them about how they are to live. And so in verse 1, he starts by talking to them about how they are to walk, or how they are to live, in a manner worthy of the calling that God has placed on them. And then in verse 17, he tells them again how they are to walk, but this time he states it negatively. He says, you can't walk like the Gentiles walk, like the unsaved walk. You can't live like they live. Well, how do they live? Well, let's read beginning in verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. So Paul is making a distinction between how the unsaved live and how the believer is to live. And we want to focus on verse 18, where it talks about the hardness of their heart. Because we're looking at the troubling truth that what keeps a sinner from God is hardness of heart. Now this phrase, hardness of heart, in verse 18, comes at the end of a long string of phrases that follow what we saw up in verse 17 about how the Gentiles, or the unsaved, walk. And each phrase explains what comes before it and adds more detail. So verse 17 says, don't walk like they do. Well, how do they walk? Verse 17 says they walk in the futility of their mind. And that means that their thinking is empty and useless. 
It accomplishes nothing. It fails to bring them closer to God. And the reason their thinking is futile is in verse 18. It's because they are darkened in their understanding. They have a reasoning process that is flooded with spiritual darkness. They have been blinded. And then what does that mean? Well, it's right there in verse 18. It means that they are excluded from the life of God. They are alienated from it. And why is that? What is the cause of the alienation? Verse 18 continues that it's because of the ignorance that is in them. Now, Scott talked about this one week recently when he was teaching on Acts. He's saying here that that unbelievers have a deeply ingrained ignorance. It's not a lack of education or a lack of information or a lack of opportunity. It's not accidental. But rather, this is an ignorance um, that did not catch them by surprise. They couldn't say they didn't know any better. It's intentional ignorance. It's purposeful. It's willful ignorance. It's like the child who purposely turns her eyes away in order to do whatever it takes to avoid eye contact when she knows that she's disobeyed. That little one wants to be ignorant of the consequences of her sin, right? She is willfully ignorant of what her mom or dad wants to communicate with her. And for the unsaved, it's an ignorance that doesn't want to know God. It's an ignorance that doesn't want to know God's will. It's the mindset, I don't want to see him. I refuse to look at him. I am not going to gaze upon him and what he wants. And Paul explains this dig-in-your-heels kind of ignorance by looking to the heart. That is why they want to remain willfully ignorant of God and his will. It's because their hearts are hard. And that word hard means dull and insensible. It cannot be penetrated so as to feel or so as to be moved from its present condition. It's petrified. Like a piece of petrified wood. Wood is supposed to be alive, but petrified wood has literally become stone. He's saying that they have stony, insensitive hearts. So the ultimate cause of why the unsaved walk the way they walk and think the way they we- think the way they think and have a sinful way of life can all be traced back to their hardness of heart. And left to himself, apart from Christ, The heart of every single person is just like this. It's because of Adam's fall. It's the condition into which we're born. And at the same time, God also warns man not to participate in the hardening of his heart. You see there that you have some references from Hebrews. You don't need to turn there. We'll be in Hebrews in just a minute. But these verses are where the writer of Hebrews is quoting the Old Testament. And he's saying, therefore, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Over and over again, don't harden your heart. We were all born with hard hearts, and we can also participate in the further hardening of our hearts. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't do that. Don't further harden your hearts. God warns us not to be a participant in that. And so as believers, we must not live like those who are unsaved. How could we? If everything that's true that's 
said in the first three chapters of Ephesians, um, these are all from chapter 2, but it says we've been made alive together with Christ, even though we were dead. And we've been raised together with him, and we've been seated together with him in the heavenly places. We've been saved by his grace, and now there are new works that God gives us to walk in. If this is the case, how on earth could we have hard-heartedness? See, it doesn't even make sense. It doesn't go together. Paul is describing two completely different ways to live. They're mutually exclusive. And so believers must not live like those who don't know the Lord. That's Paul's point here in Ephesians 4. And so he's warning us. And that's our first troubling truth, that what keeps the sinner from God is hardness of heart. That's what's true of the unbeliever. And that's troubling, and it should drive us to prayer in efforts, in our efforts to share Christ with the lost. And it's also troubling that we as believers must be warned against this. So what keeps the sinner from God is hardness of heart. That is a troubling truth. Well, for our second troubling truth, you can turn to Luke 24. Whenever possible, unbelief will naturally take root in the heart, not belief. Unbelief will naturally take root in the heart, not belief. Now, we've looked at this passage before this year, so maybe you remember the setting. Jesus has been crucified, and now he's been raised from the dead. And most of the disciples were gathered together in Jerusalem, and they were hiding, but there were two disciples that were walking on the road, heading for the village of Emmaus. So we'll pick up with the reading in verse 14. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. Well, with Jesus' question, they proceeded to explain to him how they had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Redeemer of Israel, but that he'd been crucified, he'd been put to death. But to make things even more confusing, some people had reported that Jesus was alive again. And so in verse 25, Jesus responds. He says, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. So the disciples were slow of heart to believe the scriptures, what would amount to our Old Testament. They didn't believe that it was necessary for Messiah to suffer these things and enter his glory. And so Jesus showed them from the scriptures. Now remember, these are disciples of Jesus. Verse 19 says that they believed Jesus was a prophet, that he was mighty in word and deed in the sight of God and all the people. That's a good thing to know about Jesus. And verse 22, they had heard the report from the women who'd seen angels who said he was alive. And even they had hearts that were not quick to trust the word of God. That's what Jesus said about their hearts that their hearts were slow to believe Christ-centered, Christ-revealing scripture. Everything that they had just witnessed, a substitute being offered, blood being shed, one who claimed to be Messiah, 
It just didn't register for what it truly was. Their hearts were not quick to tie what they had witnessed back to what scripture revealed about Messiah. And they looked back, as, so as they looked back at what had happened to Jesus, the response of belief would have been, oh, that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. That's what the prophets said. But that's not how they responded, is it? Now, why not? Well, it's because there was a problem with their hearts. They were slow of heart to believe in all the prophets had spoken. And at every opportunity, unbelief will naturally be present. It will naturally take root in the heart. And the resurrected Christ labored against that natural inclination to slowness of heart. And how did he do that? What did Jesus use? He used the scriptures. He used God's word. And isn't that encouraging to know that Jesus helps disciples overcome slowness of heart by explaining to them God's word? That should encourage you every, every time you go to the word, every morning when you get about it, you come to the word and you think, Lord, I can't understand a word here. Like, That's right. You ask him to help you understand because he's given you his spirit. See, even those who walked with Jesus needed that. Turn to Hebrews 3 now with me. Here we're going to see that the church, believers today, also must labor to root out this natural inclination to not trust the living God. So Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Believers are being warned against having an evil heart, a heart of unbelief. And why must we be so careful? Well, it says it's because that kind of heart falls away from the living God. Verse 13 continues, Rather, encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened. He's talking about hardness of heart by the deceitfulness of sin. So if unbelief will naturally take root in the heart, what is going to happen if we do nothing with our heart? If we just put it on cruise control? We coast? If we neglect discipline one? If our, is our heart going to be eager to believe God? To trust him? Absolutely not. The stark reality is that instead our heart will slide into unbelief. And that doesn't mean an unbelief in terms of losing our salvation, but it does mean we will not be trusting God as we should, as he is worthy to be trusted and believed. Because whenever possible, unbelief will naturally take root in our hearts. And that is a troubling truth. Well, how about our third troubling truth? Turn to Matthew 15, verse 1. Well, troubling truth number three is that self-made religion never moves the heart nearer to God. Self-made religion never moves the heart nearer to God. Well, Matthew 15 begins, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And then Jesus did what he often did in the Gospels. He didn't answer their question, but he asked them a question. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God 
for the sake of your tradition. See, the Pharisees and scribes had set up their own system of rules and traditions, and then they exalted their traditions over God's commandments. And they expected all of the Jews to line up under them and their traditions, to answer to them. But Jesus is about to set them straight. He's going to bring up evidence of how they are breaking God's commands for the sake of their tradition. So in verse 4, Jesus says, For God said, Honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Now that's serious. Verse 5, he continues, But you say, that would be according to the Pharisees' man-made rules, whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or mother. Do you see how their tradition violates God's command? They just took matters into their own hands. Their tradition was set up to cater to their greed. They set up a way that a grown son could designate some of his resources to be devoted to God, but they could still remain in his possession. But he would be exempted from using his resources um, to help his parents with their needs. He could say, golly, Dad and Mom, I'm just so sorry, but I just can't help you. You know, this thing right here that would help you, I've devoted it to God. So I just can't, I just can't give it to you. I can't honor you in that way. It was really deceptive. It was really selfish and greedy. But listen to what Jesus thinks of that tradition in verse 6. He says, by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips. See, devoting your possessions to God sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? Very religious. But look at verse 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me. Now vain there is another form of that word we saw in Ephesians 4, translated futility. In Ephesians, we saw that they had a futility or an emptiness of mind. Here we see hearts that are far from God producing empty, vain worship. And then it finishes teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. It appears that these religious men hoped that God would see their teaching their rules, their good deeds, and that he would actually be moved to set aside his standards for theirs. They appeared very religious. But God's assessment of them is that even though they were very religious, that their hearts were far from him. Because self-made religion never moves the heart nearer to God. That is a troubling truth. So let's summarize these troubling truths. First, we saw that hardness of heart keeps the sinner from God. Second, we saw that the heart will always naturally fall into unbelief. But suppose it crosses this hard-hearted, unbelieving sinner's mind to think, you know, I think I just need to get some religion here. Suppose the sinner decides that he just needs to figure out some set of rules that might appease his own conscience and so that God will be pleased with him. So God will accept him. Even this sinner is yet far from God as he wants God to accept his version of religion over God's own commands. Jesus calls him a hypocrite. That kind of a heart, even when it wants to be religious, is not open to God. 
Self-made religion never moves the heart nearer to God. And that was our third troubling truth. Now, if these things are true, and they are because we've seen them in God's word, then where is our hope? It should be very clear that we cannot look anywhere inside of us for hope. We have to look outside of our own hearts for something to change us at the heart level. And that is why we must now turn to the comforting truths for the heart. And that brings us to the gospel. What did God do in the gospel of his son? He overcame our hardness of heart. And he overcame our propensity to always disbelieve. He had to overcome that. We could never have overcome it. We were enslaved to it. And he had to come and he had to work in such a way as to convince us that all of our righteous deeds, all of our man-made religion were like filthy garments to him. God in the gospel overcomes all of that. At the cross and at the empty tomb of Jesus, God creates a new inner man who has the capacity to see what the sinner could never see on his own. The sinner's hope is God himself. A God who won't be motivated to act on the basis of what he sees in the sinner, but was motivated to act by his own heart to save sinners. See, these troubling truths reveal a lot about our God, who would save us out of all that. So let's look then at the comforting truths for my heart. Go ahead and turn to Acts 16. Our first comforting truth is that God opens hearts to respond to the gospel. So in Acts 16, we find Paul, and he's just arrived in Philippi. He's a gospel messenger there, and he's looking to proclaim the gospel. And so in verses 13 and 14, we read that on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Now, what kind of things did Paul speak? Well, we know that he spoke what the scripture said, that Messiah was crucified, that Messiah was buried, and that Messiah was raised from the dead. And the Lord opened her heart to respond. And as we read that, it should make our hearts rejoice that God does this. Because we can have no confidence that our hearts would ever want to walk away from our own self-made religion. We can have no confidence anywhere that our hearts would somehow overcome our own inclination to disbelief. And we can have no confidence that our hearts will somehow make themselves soft towards God. That they would even want to or see their need to. We can have no confidence that our heart would be open to scripture and to the gospel any other way outside of God's work. But he does open hearts. And that is a comforting truth. Go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians 4 now. Our second comforting truth is that God enlightens 
dark hearts to know him. God enlightens dark hearts to know Christ. Well, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those that are perishing. In whose case, and now he's describing those who are perishing, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, why can't they see the light? The light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. Well, it's because their minds are blind. It's the same thing we saw over in Ephesians 4. Verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but we preach Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, when did God say light shall shine out of darkness? Genesis 1, turn over there with me, because this is just so good to never quit being in awe of what God did when he created everything. In Genesis 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And if you heard Smedley preach on this last summer, literally that is light be. And there was light. See, there was no light, it was completely dark. And then God commanded, light be. And it was. There was light. All it took was his decree. And that God, who has that kind of illuminating power to create light when there is nothing but darkness, is the same one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light that we need. So if he had to shine in our hearts to give us light... What does that tell us about our hearts? That they were dark, right? Just as we've seen. And he shines in our hearts to give us a very special light. The light of the knowledge of God's glory as seen in the face of Jesus Christ. As we see him in the pages of scripture. That is a powerful, penetrating, overcoming Light. This is no mere flashlight. It's more like a huge ball of flame that we can't even begin to approach that would instantly consume us. And yet that God, with that powerful light, has shown in our hearts not to consume us, not to destroy us, but to enlighten that which was willfully dark and lost. See, there's a spiritual darkness in the human heart that only the Creator God's awe-inspiring powerful light can overcome and this light gives us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ that we might know the glory of Christ isn't that amazing now think about this in Genesis we see that God creates light out of darkness and here in 2nd Corinthians he tells us that the power he used to create that light in Genesis 
is the same power with which he overcomes our spiritual darkness so that we might know the glory of Christ. That is a comforting truth. All right, I'm just realizing that we probably need to take a break. About five minutes, we'll start again at 8 o'clock. All right, here we are for the home stretch. So we have seen that uh, God opens hearts. We've seen that he enlightens hearts with his powerful light. And now our third comforting truth is that God cleanses hearts through faith. God cleanses hearts through faith. So we're going to be back in Acts. This time we're going to look at chapter 15. Now there was a lot of trouble that came about in the early church because of the Pharisees. Some of them may have genuinely believed but were confused, or there may have been a lack of genuine belief in some cases. It's hard to know, but listen to Acts 15.5. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now he's referring to Gentile believers here. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And by that he's referring to when God sent Peter to Cornelius. And that's back in Acts 10. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. He's talking about Jewish believers there. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So back in verse 9, we saw that God cleansed their hearts by faith. doesn't matter if you're a Jew. doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. The heart is filthy and in need of cleansing. And God is the one who cleanses it. And he cleanses it by faith. He doesn't give us a formula and say that if we go off and do this ourselves, that we will somehow cleanse our own heart. God is the one who cleanses the heart. It's not something that we can do. So by what means then does God cleanse the heart? Well, it says he does it by faith. And that's the way, in a sense, in which we are involved. Faith is the great act of looking away from yourself. Faith means I'll no longer trust in me. I will look away from myself and I will cast everything that I know of myself on everything that I know of God. The way that Jonathan Edwards describes faith is venturing your all on Christ. It's casting everything of yourself on Christ. It's giving all that you know of yourself to all that you know of God. And that becomes then a never-ending process of growing in faith because we're always going to be discovering more of who we are. Right? Because when we're in God's word, our sinful heart is revealed. And we're going to need to line that up with what we're learning about God. We've got to shepherd our hearts to the word of God, to meet God, and to know him. Because we're going to need to discover how much bigger he is than what we are. 
so that we understand how badly we need to cast ourselves upon him. And so let's think about this. Think about what we've just learned. As long as we remain in a condition where we are willing to look to ourselves, faith is not looking to ourselves and looking to God, but if we're in a condition where we are willing to look to ourselves in hardness of heart, how can we trust God? How can we cleanse our heart by faith when we're constantly falling into disbelief? Those are those troubling truths. See, that kind of heart will never be the source of saving faith. As long as we remain in that kind of a condition, we're never going to trust God. And we will remain filthy before him at a heart level. So, this requires a work of God. He must open the heart, he must enlighten the heart, and he must cleanse the heart. These are all things that God does at conversion, at the time that he saves us. And how does he do it? He does it by faith, by faith which he himself must give us. Faith which our hard, untrusting, self-reliant hearts could never produce. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. God gives the faith which we must have in order for him to cleanse us. And because of what he has done, we can declare, along with Peter, like he said in Acts 15.11, that we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. He has given us that belief, that faith. That is why he can cleanse our hearts through faith. And that is a comforting truth. So praise him for that. Okay, let's look at number four then. You can turn to Ephesians 3. Our fourth comforting truth is that Christ makes himself at home in hearts by faith. Christ makes himself at home in hearts by faith. Now Ephesians 3, what we're going to look at here is part of one of Paul's prayers. And if you find yourself with some time to listen to some sermons that maybe you haven't listened to in a while or perhaps you didn't get a chance to hear back in November and December of 2009 when Scott Maxwell was teaching through Ephesians, um, I went back and listened to one of those sermons in preparation for this. Just really helpful and encouraging and um, clear. Just helps me understand God's word better. That might be a series you want to take a look at. But let's read beginning in verse 14. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. Why? Verse 17, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. So Paul prays that God would would grant them to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in the inner man so that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. Now this is not talking about the original indwelling of Christ that happens at conversion. We're not to pray that that would occur because it already has. Paul is uh, 
praying for believers in the church here. Paul is praying for a richer, deeper, practical indwelling of Christ. Now the verb there that Christ may dwell in verse 17 is actually an intensified word for dwelling. It's not a temporary dwelling. It's not just pitching a tent. This is an intensified, settled down, I'm not going anywhere kind of dwelling. It's where the one dwelling feels completely at home. Now, go ahead and turn over to Colossians 1. should just be a few pages to your right. Let's look at how Paul uses this word in another passage. In verse 19 of chapter 1 of Colossians, he says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. That's Jesus. I just realized that this version doesn't have the word deity in it. Some, I think maybe ESV has deity. Anybody have their ESV there? For all the fullness of deity to dwell in him. And that word deity means the nature and essence of the supreme being, of God. It's who God is. So Colossians 1.19 is telling us that the nature and essence of God's very being was in Jesus, is in Jesus. And that that pleased God. God was greatly pleased by that. So, in what manner is God's deity in Jesus? In what manner does it dwell in him? It's not temporary. It's not just a guest. God's deity is not just visiting, but not really at home in Jesus. God's nature and essence are in Christ to stay. It's permanent. It's eternal. It's a perfect fit. This is serious dwelling. It's intimate and it's united dwelling. And Colossians 2.9 says the same thing. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So how at home is God's deity in Jesus? It's a perfect fit, right? It's not going anywhere. So back in Ephesians 3, Paul is praying that Christ would be as at home in the believer as God's deity is at home in Christ. Now, it's important to understand that Christ does indwell believers positionally at conversion. That doesn't change. But Ephesians 3 raises the question, what kind of residence am I for Jesus Christ? What kind of residence are you for Jesus? This is about an experiential dwelling in our hearts by faith that we would be experientially rooted and grounded in love. And that's talking about the ongoing sanctification process where Christ dwells in you. See, you, your heart, the very essence of who you are is where Christ loves to dwell. Listen to what John Stott wrote about Christ dwelling in our hearts. Now, you got it there in your notes. And he was British, so you have to kind of Just take it one bite at a time. But he says that the word selected there, it's the Greek word for dwell, from Ephesians 3.17, is a word made expressly to denote residence as against lodging, or as opposed to lodging. It's the abode or home of a master within his own home, as opposed to the turning aside for a night of the wayfarer who will be gone tomorrow. He's just giving us some contrast there. Again, it's the residence 
always in the heart of its master and lord, who where he dwells must rule. Who enters not to cheer and soothe alone, but before all things else to reign. Thus Paul prays to the Father that Christ, by his Spirit, will be allowed to settle down in their hearts and from his throne there to both control and strengthen them. So what he's saying is that the heart where Christ is completely at home is the heart where he has uncontested rule and reign. Now, how are we going to be able to do that? That's the big question, right? But Paul gives the answer right there in his prayer. In verse 16, he prayed that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. To have a heart in which Christ feels completely at home, in which he can settle down both to rule and to strengthen, requires divine strength from the spirit in the inner man. Christ's original indwelling of us came by faith through grace. And so also this practical indwelling, this growing reality of Christ being increasingly at home in our hearts, also comes by faith, by ongoing trust and submission to our Savior. And that is another comforting truth. Well, that brings us to number five. And that is that God frees the heart from sin to become obedient. You can turn to Romans 6. God frees the heart from sin to become obedient. In Romans 6, verse 17, Paul says, But thanks be to God, that though you were slaves of sin, now that's a great description of what we've seen in the troubling truths, hardness of heart, slowness to believe, self-made religion, those are all evidences of being a slave to sin. But Paul says, thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. See, God frees the heart from sin to become obedient. When God saves the sinner, the first place he works is in the heart. It's in the inner man. He opens it. He enlightens it. And he also frees the heart because that is where bondage to sin exists, in the heart. Our bondage to sin was not a condition that we could do anything about. But it was a heart matter that took the blood of God's own son sacrificed on the cross to be freed from the bondage that our hearts were in. Hardness of heart was there. Unbelief was there. Quickness to establish ourselves in our own self-made religion was there. That was bondage to sin. And how did that get broken? It was by the grace of God that our heart was able to hear another voice. See, before that, our hearts only knew one master's voice. We only knew the voice of the master of sin. But something had to happen so that our heart could hear another voice, another master, another Lord. We used to be able to only hear sin's voice commanding us, and we did everything it said. But by God's grace, he transferred our heart's allegiance. He opens the heart. He enlightens the heart. He cleanses the heart. And now we find that there can be obedience from the heart. And to what do we become obedient? Go ahead and look back at verse 17. He says, You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching 
to which you are committed. He's talking about New Testament gospel teaching here. So God frees the heart, and we see the result of that in verse 18. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And it's so important that we don't miss that piece of it. We are not freed for any other purpose but to joyfully offer to ourselves up as slaves to righteousness. Verse 22 says that we're enslaved to God himself. That is the whole reason that he frees our heart from slavery to sin, so that we can be his slaves. It's a transfer of ownership, because we will always be enslaved to something. Here he's telling us that we've been freed from being enslaved to sin, so that we can be enslaved to our new master, to Christ himself. And that is what it means to be freed from sin, to become obedient. Sin no longer owns you. And that is a comforting truth. Well, lastly, our sixth comforting truth is that Christ establishes heart without blame in holiness. Christ establishes hearts without blame in holiness. And you can turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse 11, is another prayer that Paul records in his letter. And he says, Now, may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul's prayer is that the Lord may cause them to increase and abound in love. And why is that? It's so that he may establish their hearts. That means to strengthen them, stabilize them, to make them firm so that they don't vacillate and they don't waver. And then he describes what that looks like. First, he describes it negatively. He prays that God will establish us without blame in such a way that our hearts will be without fault before him because of Christ. And then Paul describes positively how God will establish us with establish us when he says in holiness when Christ establishes our hearts in holiness it means our lives are separated to God they're consecrated and where is this going to be well it says it's going to be before our God and Father it's an audience of one there will be no blame found in his presence only hearts established in holiness because of Christ. And then finally he tells us when this will happen, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In other words, it hasn't happened yet. Yet we know he is coming. And he is working even now to make sure that we are established for that day. When he does come, we will then be ushered into the presence of God without blame, established in holiness with all the saints before God the Father. So this is looking forward to glorification. It's tied to Christ's presence, which will usher the saints into the presence of God. 
So what we've seen from conversion, sanctification, Christ becoming more at home in our hearts, not being enslaved to sin, and then all the way to glorification when Christ establishes our hearts without blame before the Father. We've seen that the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are all powerfully at work within us at a heart level. From conversion all the way to glorification, God is paying very close attention to our hearts. Notice how each of these comforting truths about what God does for the heart are worded. God opens the heart. God enlightens the heart. God cleanses the heart. Christ makes himself at home in the heart. God frees the heart. Christ establishes the heart. The gospel is all about God and what he does to create a new heart, a new inner man. He makes us a new creation. So then what about us? What do we do? What is to be our response to God's amazing, personal, powerful work within us at a heart level? Because God gives intense attention to our hearts, we must also give intense attention to our hearts. That is why Discipline 1 is all about the heart. We cannot be neglectful of that on which God is so focused, from conversion all the way to glory. Our response to God's heart work within us must be to shepherd our heart to the word of God in order to worship and love and fear and know and obey the God of the word. I plead with you to let these troubling and comforting truths be kneaded into your heart that you might know him and love him and obey him more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are great. How kind it is of you that you have not concerned yourself with just one part of our salvation or you were not content just to get us forgiven but to let us be content to be far from you or to slide into unbelief or to remain hard or to be content with our self-made religion but Father from eternity past to eternity future, you have purposed to reveal the greatness of your grace and your glory and your justice and your love and your mercy by saving us from beginning to end, Lord, not as an event, but as something that you choose to display for all of eternity to show something about yourself. Oh, Father, teach us to stand more in awe of you and then to live lives that reflect that awe for you, Lord. We want to be useful instruments in your hands, Lord. Father, thank you so much for this year, for being with us, for working in our hearts, as only you can do. Father, as we go now to have our last time with our discussion groups, I pray for rich discussion. Lord, that each woman would be encouraged, each woman would be spurred on in her walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.